Hey podcast listeners, Mike Rappin, host of the I Read Comic Books podcast here. I know this is a little weird, but we just released a survey for all you listeners out there to take. We really want to get your feedback on the show, so if you have a moment, head over to ircb.us slash survey and give us some info. That's ircb.us slash survey. Anyways, I'll get out of your hair, and let's get on to the show. This is the I Read Comic Books Podcast. I am your host, Mike Rappin. With me this week are two of my favorite friends in the entire world that I love to talk about comic books with. Paul Jaisley. Hello. And Nick White. Hey, guys. Thank you both for joining me this week. I'm super excited that you're here because we're talking about something that's really exciting and really important to comic books. But before we get to all that, I'm going to ask you the question I ask every single week. How have you been, and how have comic books been for you? I'm going to kick this over to Paul first. Okay, well, I've been doing well because uh, I read a lot of great comics this week. I had to kind of play catch-up this week. I had a, a giant stack of uh, single issues towering precariously on my desk, and if I didn't read through them all, they were going to fall over and crush me probably while I was sleeping. So um, I got through as many of them as I could this week, and a couple I want to point out because I really enjoyed the artwork and some of the art choices that the artists made, uh, namely Killer Be Killed number 2, this is the uh, new Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips book. I've talked about issue one a few episodes ago. And issue two is uh, exhibition heavy. Not exhibition, I mean exposition heavy. A lot of explaining the concept of the book, you know. Still. Yeah. But I really like the way Sean Phillips handled that. Rather than just having a bunch of um, caption boxes all over the page, there's a couple of moments where he'll split the page in two, and the left-hand side of the page will be like the character's internal monologue, what he's thinking, and the right-hand side of the page will be just three static images that sort of correlate. They're, so it's like he's splitting up the the internal monologue and the action of the book on the page. It's really cool. I've never really seen him do stuff like that before, and it's interesting someone that has such a de- definitive style try something new like that. I really thought it was cool. Yeah. Um, also, I enjoyed the artwork on Wonder Woman number six. This is one of the, you know, sort of origin issues. The even numbered issues are telling the new, uh, rebirthed origin of Wonder Woman. Um, Greg Rucka on, uh, writing it and, um, Nicola Scott on pencils. And this was the issue where Wonder Woman finally comes to, uh, you know, America. She brings Steve Trainer back to man's world, you know, after he crashed on Paradise Island. So there's a lot of moments in this issue where people are talking to Diana, but she doesn't speak English, and the people talking to her don't speak the form of ancient Greek that she's speaking. Oh, fun. And Nicola Scott's, uh, sort of the ways that she draws Diana's face, Wonder Woman's face, is this very kind, pleasant, I don't know how to describe it, it's just a calming presence to her, even though she's this, you know, big, powerful woman. And just the facial expressions and the the way that she was sort of to express her ideas or what Diana was thinking without using words was really amazing. I mean, Nicola Scott is just tremendous on this book. So at least on these these issues that she gets to do. I also read a bunch of other DC stuff, Batman number seven and Nightwing number five. These are the first two parts of the new uh, Night of the Monster Men crossover oh, that's boy. happening. Uh, and oh, I really, boy. I, I dug it. I don't know. <laughs> I, I was going to sit out the crossover, but I've been enjoying the Batman books so much, uh, Batman and Detective Comics, that I figured I might as well give Nightwing a shot. And uh, it's big monsters in Gotham, and Batman's got to get all the help he can to fight them. It's pretty standard uh, comics that really sort of hit the uh, the right bat button for me. I, 
to put it that way, I guess. So, so Paul, would you say yeah. that you have to read the other books like Nightwing and Detective Comics to get the whole story? Because I'm, I think I'm only going to be reading Batman. That was exactly what I was going to ask. I, you know, based on these first two issues, it seems like you might be missing out if you skip mm. the the other parts. I don't think it's a very uh, big crossover, though. Okay. I think there's there's like... your poll quote, everyone. Paul Jaisley. <laughs> you might be missing out. You might yeah. be missing out. I mean, I don't know. I mean, this is the first part. I hadn't read any issues of Nightwing before this, and I had no problem just following it. So there's that. You know, I don't think you have to. If you just pick up issue number five, Nightwing, you won't be lost. It follows right after Batman number seven. So, Did um, it feel like there was a real effort to make it a an accessible and also approachable and yet well integrated tie-in or was it like nightwing looking up and there's like a like the bat signal in the air and he goes oh shit and then he just goes on to like doing whatever he was up to anyway <laughs> no no because i mean in detective comics and it was interesting so batman you kind of have batman on his own detective comics there's like a bigger group a bigger cast and uh nightwing's not a part of either of those books but because this event is so huge i mean there's Two story, two story tall monsters crashing around Gotham, destroying buildings. Like it's pretty unavoidable that any of the Batman books that take place in Gotham are going to have to deal with it. So it's not right. this sort of, you know, just a loose tie-in. Like it very much is part of the same story. So sorry, you're going to have to buy a couple extra comics this month if you want to keep up with it. But I think they're good books. Like I enjoyed reading it, so I don't have any regrets having to pick up a few extra issues. I think so. Yeah, unfortunately, I I, I shouldn't say unfortunately. Fortunately, I think that this crossover is really cool and it ties directly into what Batman's been building since issue number one. Yeah, exactly. and so I'm almost willing to to take the hit and read these other books simply because I want to see this monster of a story that they're putting together. I think it's going to be. Really, really good. good. And that pun was 100% yeah. intended. <laughs> uh, well done, Mike. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right. I think it's well worth checking out. If you've been enjoying Batman, at least, uh, I think you'll get you'll get a kick out of the rest of the stuff. Speaking of DC I, and Batman, I also read Trinity Number 1, which is the new uh, new series by Francis Manipal. And this was really good. It was basically uh, Bruce Wayne and uh, Diana Prince, Batman or Wonder Woman, being invited to dinner by Lois Lane. They go to Smallville to meet with the new Superman who emerged at the end of the new 52. And uh, they just have dinner and they talk. They tell stories. And it's drawn by Francis Manipal and it looks lovely. So um, if you're a DC fan, I highly recommend checking this book out. Some deep sort of references to older Silver Age stuff that I really enjoyed as a lifelong DC fan. So um, I enjoyed that. And speaking of DC, one more time, Superman number seven I read this week and is probably one of the best single Superman issues I've read in years. Um, I feel like as a Superman fan, part of my job, in a sense, is to tell the people why Superman is great. <laughs> you know, because he is sort of viewed <laughs> at as this a, point in time. Yeah. yeah. Have you he ever thought of, to yourself, gee, Paul, why do I have to keep asking and, <laughs> and telling and reminding people why Superman is great? Why am I in this constant state of like full on 24 seven Superman apologetics? Well, it, you know, it's it's not a job I take lightly, Nick. I take it very <laughs> I know. seriously. Oh, believe me. <laughs> I'm aware. Uh, no, I thought this was really good. I mean, I know Superman is kind of viewed as a corny character, but there's sometimes just these single issues where you you reminded like he's a good, pure hearted character and you kind of need that. You need somebody that's just going to always do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. Yeah, he's kind of a, a square, but that's that's all right because he does the right thing at the end of the day. This was basically just the new Superman and his uh, his wife, Lois, and their son, John, they go to the state fair, you know? Superman's like, you know, I'm not going to be Superman today. I'm just going to go be a part of the community, be a part of Smallville, and go to the state fair, ride some roller coasters, you know, just be 
a regular guy. And it was a, just a great story. I just really enjoyed it. So overall, the Superman series with this rebirth title has been very, very enjoyable as a Superman fan. And I think it's a good introduction to the character, specifically this issue. So that's the, the highlights from my week, I guess. Well, I, I do have a quick question for you, Paul. Yeah. Um, you mentioned this briefly, and I, I don't think what I'm about to ask is spoilery because it's been uh-huh. a couple months, and so I feel like in the interest of approachability, you said that this is the new Superman. Now, yeah. correct me if I'm wrong, This is is this the Superman that spun out of the Superman Lois and Lane book, which spun out of Convergence? I believe so. I wasn't reading a lot of that stuff at the time. Who the heck was? Yeah, yeah, just too much. Listeners, if you are the people who were reading that, um, take this as a moment to not be insulted by us and actually use it to inform us, please. Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, as far as I can tell, this is, if not that, it is the pre-Flashpoint Superman that returned and the new 52 Superman died. So I was going to ask, what happened to him? See, yeah, I skipped out on stuff. I wasn't reading The Last Days of Superman at that point. I was reading Action Comics. And, that was the uh, only they, one I read. Okay. <laughs> they kind of dealt with it very tangentially. They didn't really get too deep into it. So, um, I mean, but I was able to kind of pick it up and just read it. I mean, as, as long as you know that this is the this is a different Superman than the one that was in the New 52, and they address that. I mean, in Trinity, both Batman and Wonder Woman show up and like, look, we're kind of nervous. Like, we don't really know you. We knew the old Superman, and you look a lot like him, and you have the same powers, but we don't know you personally. So it's kind of this interesting dynamic going on with uh, the Superman titles and the larger DC titles because of that change. So, and it really, I mean, Superman and even Trinity, the focus on his son, the new Superboy was really great. Like, I really like that character a lot. So I, I recommend that stuff. If, if, if you want to read a good Superman story, I think now is the time to jump on. Cool. So you, you don't think Trinity is like superfluous at all? It sort of has its own kind of role and niche and it's well carved out? Because I always get nervous when you have all of like, when you have like nine books with Batman and it's like, mm-hmm. all of you, please clearly define your roles because... <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah. I mean, based on the first issue, I, I enjoyed the first issue, at least, as a story. And, you know, Francis Manipole, I don't know. I mean, it looks lovely. I think his record as a writer maybe mm-hmm. isn't great. I didn't really enjoy his Flash stuff that he was doing. Spot or on. The, Couldn't or agree the, with you more. But, I mean, but you, again, I, I have to just say, like, I'm just a sucker for that stuff. When you have those three characters together just sort of shooting the shit, talking about the Silver Age, you know, references and stuff... That's right up my alley. I mean, I'm not. That, there's no way I'm not going to enjoy that. So, it might be a little niche audience, but I, I enjoyed the heck out of that first issue. Cool, Nick. What are, what did you read this past week? Well, I read quite a bit. Although, if you want, once you listen to what I read, it feels like uh, Nick White proudly uh, reading the stuff that most of you read a couple weeks ago and still wants to talk about it, and now it's not relevant. <laughs> so here you go. Let me tell you about. Batman 28 from the New 52. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Woo, close one. Um, so first off, I feel like it doesn't need to be defended, but I did read All-Star Batman number two. I thought it was great. I still find myself liking Junior Junior's artwork a good amount on this book, and mm-hmm. I keep having to get into some weird brain gymnastics attempting to figure out why. I think I finally cracked the code on this one, and I do have to believe that it's honestly Danny Meeky's inking, who was inking, I think, most of Snyder's Batman run. Paul, am I right? I thought Jonathan Glapian was on there at one point, but mm-hmm. I think it was Meeky for the most part. Uh, if, yeah, if I remember correctly, yeah. yeah. I think Glapian was, like, maybe the full Court of Owls run. Anyway... Mm-hmm. 
and Dean White's colors, and I really like what they're doing with All-Star Batman right now because it really is a simple inversion of Batman going from being the hunter to being the hunted, and that happens so infrequently. You know, Batman mm-hmm. always has a plan. Batman is always going after someone. No one's really ever going after Batman because guess right. what? Like, he hides his identity, and he hides all of his bases, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but here, you know, he's the hunted, and mm-hmm. it's also kind of fun because Batman has always been known for having this really robust rogues gallery and isn't it kind of fun and interesting that he has all of these people to go after well guess what now that's been inverted to as well and now there's 18 million different people coming out of the woodwork with all sorts Mm -hmm. of some stupid and some you know actually dangerous abilities that want him dead Mm -hmm. um and I really, I think for me, the most fascinating part, um, at least from a narrative standpoint, is sort of this philosophical discussion about the wheel and this training mm-hmm. process with Duke and the idea that, um, <laughs> you know, this training is, is something, you know, different. <laughs> um, and honestly, like, I want to know how they're going to get out of what they do on, on the last page of that issue, because that seemed very final. That looked very, um, like there were no two ways uh, to read that panel. Uh, mm-hmm. So I thought that was interesting. I also read 4001 AD War Mother, which was one of the four one-shots that accompanied 4001 AD as an event for Valiant. Uh, it was definitely not as weird as the Shadow Man one, uh, and perhaps more relevant to the actual events that took place in 4001 AD, to the extent that I wouldn't be shocked if this character finds uh, her way into the ongoing uh, series of Rye, which I believe is continuing in the next couple months. And if anything else, it was a nice uh, shot in the arm for Valiant to get another sort of strong female protagonist. I I hate to use that tried and and tired phrase, but it it still remains quite true with this character uh, when there have obviously been, you know, accusations that things can get a little bit sausage uh, festy if you will. <laughs> I also read sure, Briggs sure. Land number one. Uh, this is a Dark Horse original. Again, I honestly can't say it enough. Dark Horse has done an amazing job of reinventing themselves in the last year, pulling in top-tier talent, telling them they can do whatever they want. Um, it's not a surprise to me that this book has already you know, been snatched up uh, by AMC, uh, and they're developing it. And it's sort of, you know, as, as the summary says, I think that, you know, summarizes it best. Briggs Land, nearly 100 square miles of rural wilderness, contains the largest anti-government secessionist movement in the United States. When matriarch Grace Briggs wrests control of the operation from her incarcerated husband, she sparks a war with the, within the community and her immediate family that threatens to bring the full power of the federal government down on their heads. And when you read this first issue, you can just see in your head how easily this would just flat out just translate to TV. So mm-hmm. excited for that. Who was on the art for that book? Gosh, what was his name? It was Mac Mac something. Right. No, Brown is busy working with Wood as well, but he's working on that Viking book that I can't think oh, of. Oh, right. Name. Right, right, right. But uh, beyond that, um, I did finally get to read uh, Killer Be Killed number one. I know I'm a little bit late to the party on that. I will say this. I do think it is the best-looking collaboration of Brubaker and Phillips and Brett Weiser, in my mm-hmm. opinion. It is their mm-hmm. best-looking book so far. Absolutely. Um, and yeah. I was telling Mike yesterday, I think what's unique about this book is that while 
These guys have always told these very interesting stories, and many of them have been period pieces with a twist. Um, and they're very great at aping different visual styles from you know certain eras. I've never really found a lot of their characters to be like relatable or mm-hmm. something that you know people can sort of see a bit of themselves in. Totally. Yeah. And yet, I think with this book, sort of the um, you know the lulls and in, in depression that this character goes through, and sort of these like sentiments of you know feeling a terrible person or this idea that, you know, in the first issue, you know, he gets saved or redeemed, but he, you know, seems to like not have a direction in his life for a while. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I think there were aspects and elements of this character that I think a lot of people, you know, especially younger people growing up and whatnot and, you know, having different struggles or whatnot can, can relate to Mm -hmm. better than some of their other characters. But um, amazing design in this book, the way that, how do I tiptoe around this? The way that the twist element in this book is <laughs> designed, I think mm-hmm. the design of the twist element is magnificent. Yeah. You know, yeah. how it's just this sort of blurry, blackish thing with these like almost chalk-like outlines that work their way around it. And for those of you who haven't read this book, you're in for a treat. I honestly think this is one of their more approachable titles. And the argument that, you know, they only do period pieces or that their stuff seems a little bit trapped or even that criminal felt a bit dated in certain ways. I think this book is simultaneously timeless and yet a bit more modern in mm-hmm. its in its in its in its pacing and whatnot. Yeah. But the final book I want to talk about, um, unless uh, either of you, I mean, do you guys have any other further comments on that book? I think both of you have read it at this point. So yeah, yeah. I mean, we I'm talked about, about it on it. another episode. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, th- I I won't go any further than that. I I know we <laughs> talked about it. Otherwise, I'm gonna just start dump- jumping right into the spoilers of the book. So <laughs> it's yeah. fine. Here's what happens in issue two, Nick. Fuck. It is pretty amazing to see some people that work so well together. I mean, Brubaker and Phillips. I mean, they just get better and better, which is yeah surprising it's it's great to see it just it's it's always nice to see them just try new stuff so yeah anyway but the final book i want to talk about is britannia number one this is valiant's newest entry in the what is this one called future of valiant that's they they name all of their launch arcs if you want to call it that so this is peter milligan and juan jose reap milligan writing juan jose reap on art Milligan should be a pretty familiar name to a lot of our readers. He's been around for a long time, and he's had um, his paws on a fair amount of relatively well-known books, all the way from Justice League Dark to um, Hellblazer. Um, I know, um, I think he did... Ecstatics. Ecstatics, mm-hmm. whichever one had yep. Dupe, the X-Men book yeah, with Yeah, Ecstatics, dupe. yeah. Okay. That was him. With Mike Allred. So he's been around for a while. He's worked... He's dabbled all around the big two for quite a bit. Um, And to be honest, he's not really been, um, well, I guess I should say I haven't really been in his corner for a fair amount of those years. And Mm -hmm. and Juan Jose Reap did the art for Clone. But this book is really, really interesting, and I, I super enjoyed it. If you're the sort of person that likes, I guess what you would call, like historical fiction with a little bit of a supernatural bent, um, this is definitely it. It takes place in 60 AD, uh, where you have this character named Antonius Axia, and he is asked by this Vestal Virgin, which um, I guess all of you can go look that stuff up. I'm sure the two of you have a vague idea what that's about, but you know, there were these women that held 
positions of power um, back in the days of the Roman Empire, and they kept this sacred flame burning, and I don't want to wander on about that because I'm probably going to say some things that are wrong, but anyway, they held positions of power, and they, they send this guy to go rescue one of their fellow uh, Vestal Virgins who's been kidnapped by this weird, like, cult. And the book almost gets kind of Cthulhu-y because he, sure enough, like, there's this weird cult and they're about to sacrifice her. And they this guy breaks in and he, like, kills all the bad dudes and then realizes that, like, maybe all of these weird rumors about this cult, like, communing with this monster are real. And he sort of goes insane and has to, like, get rehabilitated. And yet, six years later, he's being asked to go to Britannia and investigate these, like, you know, Britannia, all the way on the outlier of, of the Roman Empire's you know, outposts and whatnot, and, and investigate these weird claims mm-hmm. that maybe these monsters are more real than not, or or that, you know... I, I don't want to give too much away, but it is... If you like books that are, like, sort of gory and scary um, and have you know, some sort of a historical bend. I, I would definitely recommend this. And it's only four issues. Um, I don't know if they're going to find a way to rope this in to the larger Valiant universe. I said the same thing with Divinity, and then finally with Divinity issue number three, finally they brought in the rest of the Valiant universe, so they'll find a way. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. What really interests me about this book is that Juan Jose rips on this book. The Juan Jose Rip. I want to rip say his name reap? properly. I don't at know. Least I once. always say Reap. Reap. Uh... It was an Avatar t- title that he did with Warren Ellis um, called No Hero. Mm-hmm. And it was like one of the most gruesome books I've read. And it was right when I started to really start branching out into comics that weren't just the big two, specifically weren't just Marvel. And I remember I was at C2E2. Not C2E2, I'm sorry. I was at Wizard World Chicago (laughs) back when the big two were still going to that. And there was this thing, and there were Avatar was all over the place pushing this book, No Hero, No Hero, No Hero, Warren Ellis and Juan Jose Reap. And I was like, what is this book? And I remember just being perplexed by the the look of the mm-hmm. cover because it's it looks very much like a punk rock like magazine stuck together with like like magazine clippings and stuff, like a serial killer's <laughs> note almost. Uh-huh. And Warren Ellis was there, and at the time I stood in line for three hours trying to see Brian Michael Bendis and over my shoulder was Warren Ellis with like a handful of people talking to him and I missed my chance. This is before I knew who Warren Ellis was. And of course I ended up picking up that book thinking, oh, the you know, the artist and the writer are gonna be here. And it turns out they were only gonna be at the convention for like three hours and I missed my chance. But I read that zero issue for that book and got hooked on it and boy, it gets crazy out there blowing up everything, blood and guts and gore and just tortured, mutilated human beings. It's that's that's what I remember Juan Jose Reap's <laughs> yeah. art for. So to say that he's on like I know that I looked at his Wikipedia earlier to know that he's done big two work and that he's doing work like this. I'm like, it's got to be nasty stuff. Then <laughs> yeah, I, I think, <laughs> or maybe maybe it's toned down a little no, bit. I don't know. Not really. Um, I think probably one of his best suited works is that uh, Stephen Grant and Juan Jose Reap adapted. Um, what was, I think, Frank Miller's original screenplay for what was supposed to happen with, I believe, Terminator 2? Mm-hmm. Don't quote me on this. And holy cow. Like, if you want to talk about gore, murdered, evil doing, terrible looking people, <laughs> heaven, that would be that book. Um, and he was a perfect <laughs> okay. pairing for that. And 
Yeah, I, I, I don't know if I could recommend that book if you ever want to think uh, nice thoughts ever again. So, uh. <laughs> I see, I see. Anything else, Mike? Well, no, no, no. I was just going to go into my what I read recently because all I've been doing recently is reading manga. I stay up <laughs> oh, way too no. late and I just read, I read volumes of Bleach mm-hmm. over and over and over because I wanted to just hate myself for a while. And those books are super easy to read. And so I've been mixing comic books in with manga. And since I've been reading on a tablet, I've been swiping the wrong direction <laughs> to go forward in my sure. Western comics, which is really problematic reading Batman. And I'm, I get through a page and I swipe backwards and I go, wait, didn't I just read this? This seems new. Wait, mm-hmm. no, it's not new. Um, but I've actually, I actually did read some comics, uh, on Wednesday of last week, I did buy Seven to Eternity number one, and I'll talk about that in a minute while I get through the rest of these. So I read The Wicked and Divine One-Shot, which is Kieran Gillen and Stephanie Hans. This book was very beautiful. A lot of people liked it. I know Tia really liked it. She wrote an article on the Mary Sue about it. I didn't understand it until the very last two pages. I think I need to reread that entire series or something. I feel like I'm missing a piece of the relevancy there. But it, it's very beautiful, and I, it ties into the rest of the story. Like, I get where the characters are coming from. I kind of understood what was happening. I don't know if it's a, the end of the issue was like a precursor for what's going to happen in the next volume of the series. But ultimately, I was really, really lost, and it was hard to keep track of the characters for a little bit. So I think it deserves a reread, but it's a very beautiful book. Like, Stephanie Hans' art is, whew, <laughs> it, it is up there. I read All New Wolverine number 12, which is a Civil War II tie-in. I won't go too far into it because it's a, it was a cop-out issue and I was really oh, mad at yep. the end of it. It's not that the story was really phoned in, but the ending was so circular. Like, it's so just a, a Wolverine story. And it's like they aren't really trying to break out of the mold of what a Wolverine story mm-hmm. is. And that was a little disappointing um, because I think up until this point, the the writers, the creators that have been on this team have done a fantastic job. The art in this issue was really, really lackluster in comparison to the previous 11 issues. So I, I don't know, I'm kind of bummed about this series because I really, really like it. I'm hoping that this was just an off issue because of the tie-in. Like I realized that the tie-in to Civil War II was kind of forced. It works, but not everyone has a future that you can premonition or whatever. I, w- I won't go into it any further than that. It's just, it was kind of an annoying story arc, and I'm glad that it's done. Uh, I also read Batman number seven, which we already kind of talked about, and I read a few other books, but I, I also read The Backstagers number one finally. Issue number two, I think, just came out or is coming out very soon. This book is is like a love letter to anyone that has been in theater, has done theater, and it's, it's a bunch of just call-outs. I was never that person, so I don't think that it's as close to my heart as it probably is for a lot of other people but i really enjoyed it everything was very modern comics like what everyone cries and screams about how comic books should be this is what this book is is bright colors happy endings everyone's kind of nice but people are mean (laughs) it reminds me a lot of it reminds me of jonesy sorry the bad guys are kind of mean but they're not excruciatingly brutal to you (laughs) so it it, like i said it reminds me of jonesy and it's it's this very all ages kind of feel and it's, it's going to be a, a heartwarming book. I just hope it sells well. Ryan Singh's art, Ryan Sai's art, sorry, I mispronounced that, is very cartoony in a good way. It's not so much like Jonesy where it's very, very out there cartoony, but it's not like, you know, realistic, like a, I guess, or a classic comic booky like, you know, Jim mm-hmm. Lee or anything. It's kind of nice in the middle. Um, it reminds me a little bit of Adventure Time or Bravest Warriors, but 
less of the weird, long, crazy arm <laughs> things. I don't know if I'm describing <laughs> this very well. But it's a bright and colorful, and it's a lovely book. Uh, I, I bought it on a whim thinking, probably not going to like this, but I at least want to give it a chance because I think there was a lot of hype around it at, on the mm-hmm. internet. And it actually wasn't bad. I think I'll probably keep continuing to read this book. It's not hard to follow in comparison to like the Wicked and Divine book because I read them one after the <laughs> oh other. <my> God. <laughs> so it was a very nice breath of like relief. Uh, but otherwise, let's see. Uh, the, I did read Seven to Eternity and I said that I was going to be disappointed and angry and I wasn't. <laughs> Jeremy Opina's art is unbelievably good. He's so much better than what he, than he was in Uncanny X-Force. I don't know what happened. This guy has grown tremendously. Rick Remender is still doing his character focused in a cool world type of story, but I knew that going in, so I'm not as disappointed <laughs> as I thought. But the character designs and the like the evil bad guyness of this story is so overwhelmingly cool. I I just gotta see this through. Like the the character is so the main character is such an underdog going against these massive gods that have taken over the world. It's I love it. And it's probably because I've been reading so much manga, but this book totally works for me. It's like I'm a guy who thinks he's great, and I know everything, and I'm going to go fight the biggest, baddest guy there is. But So you're saying I now have manga to blame for you getting back into Rick Remender titles. Uh, maybe, maybe. <sighs> I, and I, I've been doing this a lot lately. I've been claiming everything's like a manga, but I think that's because stories like this are all kind of mm-hmm. the same, no matter where they come from. Sure. And so seven, in, 7 to Eternity is well worth your dollar, I'll say, even at the $4 price point, like the... Just the content in the back of sketches of Opeña's like trying out a couple different styles for each of the characters and the villains is astounding. And I don't know. I think this book will be good ultimately. And I th- I believe it's a miniseries. If it's not, I'm going to at least continue reading this through the arc um, like I've been doing for a lot of other books. I've been trying them. Mm-hmm. Like X-Men 92. I dropped that this week and number seven comes out. <laughs> what book so. did you drop? <laughs> X-Men 92. Okay. As much as I love sure. that book... I could not I could not deal with it anymore. <laughs> it happens. Yeah. It's too campy. I mean I I love those characters and I love the the setting mm-hmm. that they put them in, but it just it just got too much. It, there was so many just like in jokes and nods and like winks right. to the camera. And I'm like this is a comic book. You can't wink at me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Said no Deadpool fan ever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> God. Comic books come out this week on September 28th, 2016. Paul, what are you reading this week? What are you excited for? Well, uh, probably no surprise to you or Nick or anybody that's listened to this podcast before. I'm very excited for the new volume of Love and Rockets. Uh, Love and Rockets number one. This is, according to my math, the fourth volume of the legendary Love and Rockets series. Uh, This is going to be uh, originally going to be monthly, but it turns out it's going to be more like a quarterly or three times a year book. From Fantagraphics, the previous volume of Love and Rockets was like a big 100-page annual that came out once a year. So I'm excited to get my uh, Jaime Hernandez and Gilbert Hernandez art more regularly from Fantagraphics. Um, I don't know how deep I should get into this because, I mean, I think everyone kind of knows uh, Love and Rockets is an important series, whether they've read it or not. Or at least they've heard us talk about it at right. some point on this show, maybe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It, it, I mean, it is a classic. It's an established you know, indie book. Uh, it's been going on for over 30 years now. And the fact that both Jaime and Gilbert Hernandez are still plugging away and doing it is pretty amazing. And uh, I think its reputation only grows more important 
I kind of prefer the Jaime Hernandez stories. I think that's that's not uncommon. His work is a little bit more approachable. Gilbert's stuff can be a little bit more experimental. But what's nice about these books is that you get their artwork side by side. When they collect the old Love and Rockets, they tend to collect just the Gilbert stories and just the Jaime stories. So I love seeing their stuff back to back, where you'll get a couple pages of a Love and Rockets, you know, Jaime Hernandez story with Maggie. And then you'll get mm-hmm. a couple pages of some random story that uh, Gilbert does. And it's a great just to see that <laughs> comparison back and forth and see how different how different their approaches are to comics, you know, even though they've been doing this kind of side by side for so long. So if you have been following the previous volume, Love and Rockets News Stories, uh, it left off with Maggie Chescareo and her best friend Hopi reuniting and going back to their old neighborhood where the classic Love and Rockets stories took place for a big punk rock reunion, so to speak. So it, it was really exciting to see those characters back together in that way. I love, I love, love, love the fact that Jaime Hernandez has been telling the same story for 30 years. And these characters age realistically. The Maggie that we saw when she was 16 when the book started is now pushing 50. And you can tell it's her. You've been through all the stuff with her. It just, I mean, I, I just love that, that. So weird, man. Like, it's so, so crazy. I deal with, like, this is Judge Dredd. And he just does the same thing regardless. Yep. So... You know, it's, 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 I think it might be daunting, obviously, to say, like, hey, this story's been going on for 30 years, just jump on. But honestly, I think Jaime Hernandez is such a good storyteller that you could pick up this issue and get a feel for who these characters are and their history together, even if you never read any other stuff. And if you dig it, cool, there's 30 years worth of stories for you to go read. If you don't dig it, at least Jaime Hernandez's artwork is pretty enough to just look at, you know, whether you dig the story or not. So I'm excited for this. I think it might be good. I jumped on with the previous volume, uh, number one, the Love and Rockets News Stories volume one. I had never read it before, and I was hooked immediately. So if you want an excuse to check this book out, I think this is uh, maybe the, the... excuse you need to check it out finally man i might have to do that this week yes this do is it, like, you've got you got me hyped up man this is exactly <laughs> trans this is transformers versus gi joe all over again yes that's what i do that's what <laughs> oh i do I, I turn you on to new stuff all the time so paul is just the hype man he's great <laughs> nick what are you excited for this week for me um much like paul i think this book is probably not going to shock anyone that it's my pick um but it's aliens defiance number five the big reason for this, this of course is the 12 issue maxi series by Brian Wood. Big reason I'm excited for this issue is that Tristan Jones is returning to art. Uh, Jones did issues one and two, and then Ricardo Bucciarelli did three, and Tony Braschini did four. Um, but really, they were just not as. No offense to Bucciarelli, because obviously he's. Aside from butchering, butchering his name, he's uh, Brian Wood's buddy from DMZ. But Tristan Jones draws the scariest, grittiest, most terrifying aliens I have ever seen. <laughs> and I can tell you, for better or for worse, I've seen a lot of different artistic depictions of H.R. Giger's creature. <laughs> um, some cute, some non-threatening, and others downright terrifying. And, and, and Tristan Jones ones are just like these like skeletal unrelenting murder machines so i'm really pumped to see him uh return i think this issue is going to be interesting because we've seen private first class zula hendrix and uh davis 01 the Wayland yutani security drone who d- apparently decided to defy his programming whether we've decided to truly believe this or not attempting to follow some of the paper trail that Whalen yutani has left and destroy some of these outposts that hold xenomorph, I don't know, samples, if you will, 
Uh, and in this issue, we're going to see them uh, sort of going toe-to-toe with other colonial marines that have actually been sent out to recover the samples. And it's going to be interesting, uh, because at least with this issue, it's going to take place on like a large mining facility of sorts. Mm-hmm. So it's actually going to be like a, a real populated area, whereas, as we all know, with most Aliens narratives, it's like seven people on abandoned ship, seven people on an abandoned space station four people trapped in their living room with an alien hiding behind the refrigerator. You get the idea. It's always like a bottleneck scenario with like six people. So the idea that it's this highly populated situation. Um, I know it's like, Nick, this is, these are small, dumb twists, Nick. This is kind of like sad. Like, do you feel like aliens has like reached its death throes in terms of, you know, narr- narrative capability? And I'm not answering that question. I think that's not fair. And I don't You're want still to. buying. You're still yeah. buying it though, so Yeah. You don't understand not. there's like seventy people here. It's totally different from the last alien story. No. It, it it should be great. And Tristan Jones, when he's done with this, I expect him to get a lot more work, mm. honestly. Hmm. That's exciting. Interesting. What about you, Mike? What's your pick? Oh, this week is weird because I have a decent sized poll, but I'm behind on Future Quest, so I don't necessarily want to pick that. Yeah. Um, Outcast has kind of been doing its Outcast thing. Ringside, I'm behind on that. Saga, I just read, and it's kind of just been at 100% the entire time. <laughs> so I picked the Flash number seven this week because the twist that happened at the end of issue six was very, in my mind, classic Flash. Like, it's a classic comic book Flash twist, and I won't Hmm. give it away. So I'm really excited to see where this book goes. I don't know if I really am a fan of this two-issue, two-issue, two-issue thing that they've been doing with artists, where they've been rotating them out Hmm. instead of every other or every third or something. They've been rotating them out for two issues at a time. And it's kind of jarring because I like the depictions of one artist over another, and as soon as I get attached to one artist, they switch. And yeah. so it's been it's really, really weird. weird to see multiple artists kind of working on the same arc. I find that very weird. Um, I thought the whole intent with this whole DC rebirth was that each artist, a great example would be David Finch on Batman. You know, mm-hmm. Finch was around for the whole arc and for better or for worse, whether you liked it or not, there was a, a visual continuity of sorts. Yeah. Um, Rossmo is on say this that most this has recent been the issue. case on other mm-hmm. on, on other DC books. It's not the case with my Green Arrow book. It sounds like it's not the case with your Flash book. Yeah, it, it's been it's been weird all over the board. I think, and so the art thing aside, the story has been okay. But I'm I'm like accepting that like that it it wasn't a hundred percent great. But I think that it was classic. And mm-hmm. so I'm trying to roll with that to say, like, is this what makes a good Flash story? Because, like mm-hmm. I said, since I started reading this, I've never read a Flash comic book before. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to go into this without being, like, a judgmental jerk about DC books, thinking, well, they're all just clunky and none of them make sense. And, of course, it's this person. <laughs> of course, it was that person who's the bad guy. Of course, this person got abducted. You know, nothing like that. <laughs> so uh, mm-hmm. without giving too much away, I mean, I hope that doesn't spoil the story, but... I don't know. I, I'm ready to keep going. There, there's this underlying story that's been going on with, um, oh, it's not Wally West. What's his name? The the young Flash kid who suddenly became the Flash. Um, he like lives with Iris West. Wally Wally West, I think, Wally is his West? name. I don't yeah. know. Is, that, is it Wally West? Is that Bart West? No, no it's Bart's it's the must, old one. It must be Wally West. I'm just <laughs> getting my names confused. And that's the story that I'm really interested in. But they haven't touched on it enough. So I'm hoping that this next arc finally does while they figure out how to resolve this whole bad guy mm. thing which is more than likely the the godspeed character is likely going to be the focus of this story arc 
unlike the last one where he was hinted at and finally be you know came to fruition in the in issue number six. So I'm excited for this book, but I'm <laughs> still hesitant. Like I'm gonna give it one more arc, I think, yeah. and then we'll see w- how I feel about this story. <laughs> so interesting. I don't know. The Flash is a weird comic book to read. I I really like the TV show, and I didn't <laughs> realize how similar the comics were to the TV show. Like I was hoping. Oh okay. Mm-hmm. But like in the in reading this book, it feels very very close, and I don't know if that's good or bad yet. I have yet to decide, <laughs> even after six issues. It yeah, it's very strange. It it's weird. Yeah, I've been meaning to kind of go back and check this book out, but it's strange. I haven't read a regular Flash comic regularly in years and years, and the Flash has always been my favorite, like one of my favorite superheroes. When I was a kid, I loved the Flash because really? there was the TV show in the early '90s that I loved, oh. <laughs> and then. <laughs> And then, you know, and I wasn't reading a ton of comics back then. And then now uh-huh. with this, I love the new Flash series, the TV show, but I haven't really read a regular Flash comic. It's weird. I love that character, but for some reason, it's always off. The comics never quite do it for me the way that the TV show does. So, I don't know. Well, I'd say if, when this first trade comes out, I'd say give it a chance. Sure. I, it's yeah. it's not bad by any means. It's just kind of, it just feels like super classic, like tropey comic books in a way. Okay. And it works. It works for the most part. Cool. a few weeks past it, but uh, many comic book readers and fans across the world probably celebrated August 28th like they do every year because it's a very important date in the history of comics. It is, of course, the <laughs> date back in 1917 that Jack Kirby, uh, born Jacob Kurtzberg, w- was born. Uh, and uh, this year marks the 99th anniversary of his birth. And uh, I, as probably well known to anybody that's listened to this uh, podcast a few episodes, has heard me talk about Jack Kirby. I'm a huge fan, and I think it's always important to go back and look at his influence, not just as an artist, which I might argue he's probably the greatest comic book artist of all time, uh, chiefly because of his influence, but the larger picture of Jack Kirby. I think, as we'll talk about uh, in this, this discussion we'll have honoring Jack Kirby and talking about his influence, his work... And his ideas about comics pushed the industry and pushed the medium in ways that it hadn't been pushed before, mm-hmm. uh, both in terms of art, story, and just the idea of what comics can do, what you can do with comics. So I wanted to kind of talk about that with you guys, who I, I think we all have different histories with Jack Kirby. I've been a fan as long as I can remember. Um, I think you guys are sort of more uh, more recently have started reading his stuff. So how should we start? There's so much to talk about Jack Kirby. So I, I guess maybe to start, I want to say... When we talk about Jack Kirby, when we talk about his influence, it's very easy just to read off or list off the characters he created. So you let's know. do that now. Oh, so we'll just, <laughs> here's the list. But, I, you know, it is impressive, no doubt. The guy invented Marvel Comics, basically, right? But that, I think that diminishes his importance in some sense. Yeah, he created a lot of great intellectual property for Marvel and DC, but when you read about his history, he kind of got screwed over and didn't get recognized for that at the time. So it's kind of a sore subject. What, oh, yeah. I think is, what I think is more interesting is the fact that he was pushing comics in new ways by creating these characters that had never been seen before. Yeah, the characters generate a lot of money, but they're weird concepts. When you think about Jack Kirby created Galactus, no one had done a villain like that before. He wasn't an evil mad scientist. He wasn't you know, a monster. He wasn't a gangster. He was like a god. And yeah, he wasn't human. 
Yeah. So, I mean, that the level that Jack Kirby pushed, not just story or art or, I mean, that's important, but I think talking about the larger implications of his work is worth the discussion. So I'll be quiet for a minute. And uh, what do you guys think about Jack Kirby? The, the, the thing that comes to mind about Jack Kirby when I, when I think about it now is how much I didn't realize was him. Like mm-hmm. when I think about, you know, all the prints or all the t-shirts or all the, you know, posters or whatever you saw at conventions or you saw it, you see it like Hot Topic or you see it Coles mm-hmm. or wherever, you know, you see all this art for these characters, but, you know, these iconic Marvel characters, you think of Thor, the X-Men, Captain America, Spider-Man, all of these characters were created by Jack Kirby and they are the images that you see of them are typically Jack Kirby's images because right. they're so iconic. They're so like, and now they're like retro in a way, but they're so like the definitive image of what you think of these characters and no one unless you dive into it like we have you know you don't really recognize that as jack kirby you wouldn't walk down the street and go hey who drew that do you know mm-hmm. the artist who did that no one would be able to tell you they would just say well that's captain america you go yeah. well th- th- the guy behind it is actually way more important man and then you sit yeah. someone down and talk to them for 10 minutes about it and then before they've called the cops you and run away into an alley yeah yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's that's something that's always struck me that like the more and more i read about Jack Kirby, the more I realized, wow, these images have been with me my whole life. I just didn't, I didn't realize they were all done by the same person. I didn't realize they all came out of the same era. I thought these were just the stock images, you know, that Marvel had. And it turns out that they are. Yeah, they're they're just so ubiquitous. You're like, this is, this is this character, you know, forever and ever. And the idea that you, you know, associate a person with it or that maybe, you know, they didn't always look that way. Um, it, it just doesn't come to mind. You're like, this is how the character started. And you're like, that's mm-hmm. it. But, but mm-hmm. you know, not to put Kirby up on too much of a pedestal. I mean, obviously we are here a little bit, but like there are, you know, famous works that we think about in art, in art history, you know, and we attribute them to the artist. You know, you think of Pablo Picasso, you think of, mm-hmm. you know, Da Vinci, you think of uh, the guy who did Starry Night, whose name is blank- I'm blanking on right now. Van Gogh. Van Gogh. Uh, Van Gogh. <laughs> you know, but when you see these images, people typically associate them with the artist. But when it comes to these iconic characters, I don't think a lot of people go, that's a Kirby, you know, right. by any means. Yeah, yeah. And I think to, to piggyback off that point, I think what's really interesting is that people that are into comics and artists and other creators know that stuff. And oh, yeah. when you start digging into it, it's not just the, the characters, but his drawing style was very different for the mm-hmm. time. I mean, he reinvented yeah. his own style several times over his career, mm-hmm. which, of course, his career spanned, you know, like seven decades. So he was able to do that. But, you know, techniques, like the way he would draw cosmic energy, which is something that you can't really draw, but the way he developed these, like, squiggly oh, lines. the Kirby crackle. The Kirby yeah, crackle. Yeah, the Kirby and crackle. And people are still using that stuff to this day. His use of, you know... Um, negative space. Negative space. And... yeah. His, the way he pushed it, you no, know, I do collage art on my on my own. So when I started seeing in old Fantastic Four issues, Kirby was doing photo collages to portray the negative zone and stuff. I mean, that no one had ever done that before. And I don't think that's something people even think to do nowadays even. That sort of technique, the way he used the page itself, I don't think he was the first person to do a splash page, but he used them wonderfully. If you look at his work for DC in the early 70s, he'd do this thing where you'd have the cover and then you'd open the page and it'd be a splash page you know, introducing the story. And then the following the splash page would be a double page spread. So the story just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And (laughs) it's this wonderful like rhythm to his stories that people do, but it's like, like you said, Mike, unless you're tuned in, you might not know that it's all kind of coming from this Kirby tradition. Totally. I, I think for me, the thing that stuck out the most was anyone who knows a little bit of comics 
probably knows a bit about the origins of Stan Lee, and if you know if you know a little bit more than that, especially if you've heard the somewhat similar narrative on the DC side of things, you know everyone goes okay. So everyone says it was Stan Lee, but you know who did he who did he screw over? You know <laughs> to to get that way because it seems like that's well, that's just how that narrative works, right? That archetype. And um, so I'd heard of Kirby before, but I think what shocked me the most was that at first you discover him and you're like, wow, he was this really influential artist and he was sort of doing, you know, he was abstracting the medium at a time when everyone else was sort of like, look, you actually have to learn how to draw muscles and sinews and, you know, so we can be, like, respectable. And um, I even remember there was a... There was a quote that Neil Adams had during the time that he was talking during that documentary. And yeah, there's this hour-long documentary that's on YouTube. I'll post a link to it in the show yeah, notes. I've actually so, got a couple things that I'll probably post. I don't know if we'll right. get to them all, but they were all really influential in today's discussion as well as some links to comics that we all tried yeah. to read or at least look mm-hmm. at for a little bit. Um, but the, the the documentary that Nick is talking about is absolutely fantastic. I don't know if you have the I don't know if you have the quote ready or not, Nick. Yeah, I got it. I got yeah, it. Yeah, go ahead. Anyway, it's from a Jack Kirby Storyteller, which is a documentary mm-hmm. which is on YouTube. I'm certain. I don't know if there's a way that you can buy that if you want to, you know, throw some money at it. But it is on YouTube, so I'm sure someone's going to get compensated. Um, and Neil Adams says, and I was interested in drawing. I was interested in anatomy. I was interested in perspective and all these things that a young artist is interested in and not interested in somebody who had gone, taken all that stuff, put it in his back pocket, and then gone on to create uh, just total action on a page. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think while all of this you know, praise for Kirby as an artist is not undue, it is, but the idea that he was just as big of a storyteller, mm-hmm. um, and not just in the works that people conventionally know him for writing, such as New Gods, but the idea that he was actually really the one behind everything that was, you know, like, oh, Stan Lee, Stan Lee saved Marvel all by himself, blah, 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 isn't that (laughs) great? (laughs) You know, if you read a lot of stuff, Kirby basically says, um, and not to split hairs, he basically says, uh, it was all me. Like, literally, Mm -hmm. it was all me. Uh, Stan was great at, like, knowing when the board meeting was going to be held and sending out packages. But I believe the literal quote is something along the lines of, like, Stan Lee was just an office worker at Marvel because of his cousin who ran the place or something along those Mm -hmm. lines. I was like, these are bold words. This is... uh, (laughs) pretty big statement to make. And that's something that's kind of been around in the comic industry for a while. I mean, the documentary we were talking about, I think, was made in the, sometime in the mid-90s. Mm-hmm. And I think that there, there's an there's an interview that Nick sent me a, a piece of... Okay, so that was made in 2005. But there was a piece of an article that came out in 1990 from the Comics Journal um, when it was still, I think, just a magazine. Mm-hmm. And, well, I don't think it was on the internet in 1990. But nonetheless, right. you know, it was still just a magazine. And Kirby and his wife go into great detail about how Kirby did all the work and Stanley was just there and Kirby straight up calls him out in the article and it's there's no real 
you know, paper trail. There's no real way to prove any of this. And at one mm-hmm. point, you know, Kirby's wife even says, you know, this is just his word versus another, you know, another person's word. No one has any kind of documentation to prove any of this. Mm-hmm. But Kirby, Kirby's like, no, but I want to say this right here. I want to get this on paper in one way to say I did all of the work. I created mm-hmm. all of these characters and Stanley was just there as like a placeholder. Like his name got put on all of these books, blah, blah, blah. And now we obviously should take that with a grain of salt. Because I think it was very, I think Paul said this in in the pre-show before we started going, that it was probably a little bit sour grapes. But at the same time, like, we can't doubt this. Like, I don't think Kirby would claim this so much and be telling a lie. Like, he's not getting any royalties for it. He's he's saying it for his own pride. And to me, I don't know, I want to take his side. Like, he seems to have such a great grasp on all of these characters, the way he talks Mm -hmm. about them in interviews. It's astounding. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, that's interesting. I think knowing what we know now about how the Marvel method worked back then, where it was Stanley, assumedly, pitched an idea for the issue to Kirby or Ditko, whoever he was working with. And then the artist would basically draw the comic with some uh, notes in the, you know, in the side of the page of what the story was. And then Stanley would go and fill in the dialogue and the caption boxes and all that. So the division of labor isn't that clear cut. I mean, a lot of the stories in Fantastic Four and X-Men, all those those classic Marvel stories were written by Kirby, essentially. Maybe not the words themselves on the page, but the actual plot of the issue, what happened in the issue was planned out by him. Right. And so we know that now, and you know that, I mean, that's part of what Kirby's pointing out. It's like, yeah, it wasn't just him writing it and then me drawing it. There was more of a collaborative, or as Kirby says, I did all the work. But (laughs) if it is sour grapes, it's somewhat justified. I mean, Kirby didn't get credit when he was alive, really. Um, He passed away in 94, and I think his financial compensation for his creations came just a few years ago, you know, for his family. Yeah. And his his work for hire was that line in his contract, he's doing this work for hire, was used to prevent him from getting royalties for years. And not only that, there's plenty of stories where they go into the legal documents and say other artists had their art returned to them after a certain amount of time. Mm-hmm. Kirby was one of the only artists at Marvel who didn't get his original pages back. Marvel owns thousands and thousands, and there are thousands upon thousands of Jack Kirby pages. He was drawing 15 pages a week in the yeah. late 60s, yeah. early oh, 70s. Goodness. So there's so much of his artwork that he never got to own. So the, the sour grapes element, it's there, but it's somewhat justified. And I think the rise and awareness about creators' rights in comics and the unfairness of work-for-hire contracts Again, that's part of Kirby's legacy. He made people wear that stuff. Yeah, that was a great point in that that documentary saying that, you know, if Kirby, when he left Marvel to go work at DC when he did New Gods and he did all Mm -hmm. sorts of other stuff over there, some of the creators were saying that if DC or Marvel had just offered him a contract that they would later offer to artists in like the mid 80s um, to him in the 70s, he would have stayed at Marvel and he would have gone on to create, you know, thousands of more pages of Fantastic mm-hmm. Four and Captain America and, you know, all these staples at Marvel that he mm-hmm. founded and just said, you know, I, I liked Thor, so I created a Thor book. You know, we did Captain America in the 40s, so we brought Captain America back. I did the Avengers. Like, he did all of these books because he yeah. loved all of these characters and he understood them. But when he mm-hmm. left, it was, you you know, it was a, please give me this or I'm going to go. And then he went over to DC where it was a little bit better, but more or less the same. And then he bounced back yeah. to Marvel eventually. Like, you guys really got to watch this documentary. It totally blew my <laughs> mind. <laughs> it's very good. It's very well done. And I think, you know, that's that's an interesting point. What, what I think, though, I, a point I want to stress here is that 
we talk about these creator these characters that you created, but there's a great interview by uh, or quote that Mark Evaner, who was Jack Kirby's assistant in the early 70s, and by assistant he basically just sat and watched Jack draw, and Jack told him stories. Yeah. He didn't yeah. like help yeah. at all. But That's Mark Evaner basically admitted in the documentary yeah. as well. Yeah. <laughs> but Mark Evaner, it might be in the documentary, it might be in the the biography that Mark Evaner did about Kirby a few years ago. But he makes tells a story that someone made a comment that I'm gonna a new creator was taking over the Captain America book in like the 70s or 80s and says, well, I'm gonna return it to the Jack Kirby, you know, the the Jack Kirby method or the Jack Kirby style. And Jack turned to Mark Evner and said, well, this kid doesn't get it. The Jack Kirby style, the Jack Kirby method, is to create something new. It's like I've already done Captain America stories. I'm gonna do something different. So he's known for these classic characters, but you look at his legacy and what he did in the 70s, 80s, and into the 90s, he was always creating something new. He wanted, never wanted to repeat himself. Right. And that's, I mean, that's pretty amazing to have that much imagination to do all that. Yeah. So, and in that, in that light, I mean, what kind of books would you say are probably his most creative? I know between, you know, in the pre-show, we were talking a little mm-hmm. bit about OMAC and we, you know, we mm-hmm. mentioned Fantastic Four and stuff. But mm-hmm. like what made these books like when he went over to D.C. and he was getting the writer and art- artist credit, you know, yeah. what made these books so insane to you guys? And unfortunately, I didn't have a chance to read a lot of his D.C. work. <laughs> I just read a little bit of the, the S.H.I.E.L.D. book that I happened to pick up uh, last week. But yeah. you guys were saying stuff about OMAC before <laughs> uh yeah, yeah. so nick i'll let you because i think you just read omac and after my uh very enthusiastic recommendation so i kind of want to hear what you what you thought of it <laughs> yeah so i mean my background here is is one that's not steeped in kirby but i did read the dan didio keith giffen take on omac from mm-hmm. uh 2001 with the uh, uh onset of the new 52 um, so it was definitely different to not see a totally like blue looking OMAC. I mean, mm-hmm. the new 52 OMAC was almost more beast than man, whereas mm-hmm. the old OMAC is a guy with a mohawk and gauntlets. Which it's uh, so cool looking though. <laughs> it's, like, awesome. it's awesome looking. Like he's, it's not just a regular like punk mohawk. It's like a full fledged like piece of steel coming out of his head. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. so awesome to me. <laughs> it's awesome. But it was it was a super bizarre story that I could already tell from you know from the beginning that this was not a book that was going to tie into anything else or or play well with anything else it was just unadulterated kirby from from beginning to end you know mm-hmm. not any like publisher running interference really or or any artist you know getting in the way of whatever he thought the vision was and yeah so omac is is the one man uh army corps. action corps army one man corps. army corps yeah yeah, one man army corps. I should I should know that because I think about four different characters in every issue remind you that that's what it <laughs> that's what it stands for. <laughs> he truly is a one man army corps. Yes, he is. Yes. That's how they it's round off every issue, right? It's just wow. <laughs> he truly is a one man army corps. He really is. Oh no, it's OMAC. What does that stand for? Don't worry, I'll tell you in the next panel. It's one man army corps. <laughs> um, but all, all all joking aside, it's this really terrifying book that that begins with this you know one of those great exclamations that this is the story of a young man in the world that's coming followed by two exclamation points thus making it the only time i've ever seen anyone ever successfully pull off a two exclamation point uh sentence like one is fine three is crazy i've never seen anyone do two so i mean that alone from a grammar standpoint i was like this guy is this guy is treading new ground here. What's going on? Oh this my. is insane. And this is yeah. panel one of the book. Right? Exactly. This is like yeah. This is like page one. I was like, what is going on? But yeah, it's it's this really bizarre story about 
a future in which mankind attempts to solve his problems, solve world peace, solve what to do with one's free time, um, how to make meaning out of life with the idea that technology will fix these things. And it's alarming how not far off Kirby is. I mean, I think it's on page two, Omac, or as he's known at the time, Buddy Blank, Buddy Blank. you know, um, runs into this. It, basically, it's like a, it's the Ikea version of a person, uh, you know, assembly, <laughs> some assembly required, you know, with instructions. And the, the, the thing says, you know, hello, put me together and I will be your friend. And I was just thinking to myself, like, in a really dark way, I think that's like somewhat not... It's it's unusually appealing to people that like, you know, here's the easiest way to end up with a, a friend. It's just like here's mm-hmm. here's, you know, how you can, you know, spend your time and, and have someone that you can hang out with and, and and I thought that was like really disturbing in a way. And I also really like that Kirby plays off of you can tell that Kirby definitely pays attention to science because mm-hmm. This OMAC project is supposed to be like a sub, a subdivision of an offshoot of an offshoot of NASA, and it's this idea of the that space satellites can become something more, and so you can tell that Kirby was obviously interested in, you know, what can space satellites do? How can they transmit data? What mm-hmm. sort of things could they be transmitting? How would that influence people? You know, you can sort of see some of the gears going on in his mind about how to you know, run science into this book. Mm-hmm. And, and of course you have the idea that Buddy Blank is turned into OMAC by, um, what is it? I think it's the Global Peace, it's the GPA, Global yeah. Peace Global Association, Peace something like that. Yeah. There's some really funny ideas there that I thought were kind of eerie because these two guys show up because they're the ones that are in charge of, for the Global Peace Association, with deciding who will become OMAC because they've mm-hmm. been working on this project for a long time and they have to decide who they're going to transform into OMAC and they pick Buddy Blank. And the scientist that they deliver the information to goes, you know, oh, you guys are doing such great work. It's a pity that I can't see your faces. And they've got these weird sort of blurry masked looking faces and they go you know well it makes us um the they have this cosmetic spray is what they call it and then they say it makes us anonymous we could be of any nation and i was like is this like anonymous this is kind of like <laughs> weird in a way yeah, it's yeah, almost yeah. like internet culture i don't know it, um, I, yeah i mean if i could just you know jump in i think oh what, please that, go that's ahead, what makes yeah. omeg so interesting to me is that it is really pure kirby which is good and and I don't say bad, but it's problematic in a sense because sometimes you can tell that maybe an editor would have like, yeah, curbed some of his, but I love it. I mean, that's the thing. Like sometimes it turns into a bizarre mess and you're like (laughs) with an editor, maybe this wouldn't have happened. And I can't decide whether that's a good thing or not. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's a fascinating book because that, because there's so much in there to pick out. It's just, you kind of have to look past or through all of the, you know, explosions and over-the-top dialogue and to find the sort of interesting nuggets of uh, ideas you're picking out here, Nick. But as the series goes on, this happens a lot in Kirby's DC work and is when he goes back to Marvel in the 70s, where he's almost creating too many ideas. Like something will come up and you're like, oh, that's really interesting. And it just never gets mentioned again. 
Oh, you know, man. there's a there's a moment in Omac where like, hey, Omac doesn't have any parents because we just made Omac basically. So they bring in two random people. It's like, well, we ran your numbers through a computer, and it turns out these people would be a good compatibility for you. So they're gonna here's your new parents, here's your new family, and they are like never <laughs> mentioned again. And what? it's such a, a, a strange idea. I just love that. But I think Omac again is somewhat difficult to get into because it is so pure, unfiltered in a way. You know. Um, I think it's my favorite Jack Kirby book because of that, but I have, I would, I enthusiastically re- recommended it to Nick, but I maybe more cautiously recommend it to people who have never read Kirby before because it is very <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> pure cut, you know? It's, yeah. it's very bizarre and it's it, not unlike a lot of other Kirby stuff. And, and to modern readers, this will seem a little bit heavy handed, a little bit ham fisted, but he really does have social messages that he's trying to get across you know even in this issue you know the the operative from the global peace agency points out you know that violence large or small can destroy us all one exclamation point at the end of that one by the way Um, (laughs) and if it's it's fascinating to look at kirby's other works and and his social commentary is is just i mean uh, I read the Fantastic Four issue in that trade that was about mm-hmm. the, what, the hate monger? Yeah. yeah. Which is yeah. obviously a not-too-subtle um, allusion to the to the KKK with right. the outfit, but then yeah. the hate monger turns out to be, why am I saying spoilers? This is like 40 years. This is like 50-year-old <laughs> yeah. spoilers. The hate monger turns out to be uh, none other than Hitler or a clone of Hitler himself. Mm-hmm. And... Mm-hmm. Some of the things that come out of his mouth, you could just, you know, swap the hate monger with Donald Trump or assume Donald Trump sure. is the one wearing the hood. And it's like, <laughs> wow, this is kind of modern society. See, what, uh, what or, I actually found really interesting about that issue of Fantastic Four yeah, was the way that the the characters treated each other when they were hit with the green ray that caused them to hate each other. The like, hate ray, yeah. Yeah, like the, you know, the thing, the thing to me almost seemed unchanged minus the fact that he wanted to beat up you know reed richards for some reason yeah and like reed richards almost he like totally flails like as a character like he like he his character didn't know how to adjust to the hate mm-hmm. and so like he he totally he loses himself and he doesn't know what to do and he tries these weak tactics and maybe i haven't read enough old fantastic four to know yeah. about how reed Richards used his power but he just he totally failed as a hating character, whereas the Invisible Woman just disappeared, which is great. Yeah, she's just like, men are dumb. Yeah, yeah, she's like, this. this is all she's stupid, like... and they're all dumb. And then, you know, Johnny Storm, he's like, well, I'm going to I'm gonna melt you into the ground, the thing. Like, he just did more of the, the Human Torch stuff just against his friends, but he, he just embraced his pride. I, I thought <laughs> that was, like, a really interesting take on those characters, seeing that they're supposed to be the wholesome family, and Kirby <laughs> had, I think, probably the best grasp on them, and then to yeah. see them like all flip and do like a 180 to be like hating type characters the fact that the thing was more or less unchanged like just made me giggle as i was reading it and i could not (laughs) get over how well drawn the thing was like yes he's he's made up all of all these different rocks and they're shading and like even you look at modern takes you look at you know everything uh, about this character i think kirby's the thing was the best by far like just (laughs) he feels so clunky and it works so well. I don't know. That that yeah. was the one thing I, I took away from that. I really enjoyed the art in that book. I think that that's really interesting. I've read a, a handful of that old Fantastic Four stuff. I tend to know more about the DC work that Kirby did, but in the Marvel stuff I've read, the Fantastic Four, he clearly identifies with Ben Grimm. 
Like Ben Grimm is a stand-in for Kirby, right? Because you know? <laughs> right. Jack Kirby, even the jawline. If you yeah. look at the jawline on Ben Grimm, yeah, compared to when Kirby drew Jack himself Kirby. in other books, he <laughs> yeah. almost looks the same just with rocks on his face. <laughs> <laughs> it's so interesting. I mean, I I, I love that. And the, reading those old issues, there's so much going back and reading them now by understanding Kirby's history a bit more, there's so much to take out of that. Like I read um, the classic Galactus trilogy, you know, Fantastic Four, I think it's 48, 49 and 50, where Galactus shows up for the first time, then the Silver Surfer shows up for the first time. Those comics still feel exciting, you know, 50 years later. Like that's mm-hmm. still exciting, energetic stuff. And it feels even different. And the character like the Watcher, like that feels like a very strange character for the time even. And that's stuff that Kirby was doing, pushing what you could do with comics. And then the issue right after that, issue 51, is this man, this monster, where, like, Ben Grimm gets cured and he's no longer the thing anymore and, like, how that messes with his mind. And it's a very deep, emotional, psychological exploration of the character that you don't tend to think of Silver Age comics doing that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I mm-hmm. think there's a lot... It's, it behooves you, in a sense, to go back and reread that stuff because... It, it it's great it's not corny i mean it is at times but there's a lot to nip you could pick out of there that's really interesting yeah so all you out there with those marvel unlimited subscriptions go for it <laughs> read those books yeah. and let us know what you think <laughs> yeah i was just shocked with uh with that issue of just how many insane poses jack kirby was putting mr fantastic <laughs> into i was like buddy yeah. <laughs> if it was me mr fantastic would be like stretching his arm here or there mm-hmm. maybe like stretching his head a little bit but like he goes nuts with this issue yeah. like he stretches his hand into the ground and all the different roots to like uproot this tree or he stretches him into a road where the bad guys are like i don't remember this road being there yesterday and it's just mr fantastic <laughs> then he like rolls them up uh, it's absolutely just nuts how mm-hmm. many just and or, or the tangled mess he like you know wraps ben Grimm up in and i'm like mm-hmm. what are you doing buddy you're just making this job harder on yourself right like, <laughs> like he was purposefully yeah, drawing yeah. really complex panels throughout that entire issue and i'm sure that it's like that in everything that kirby's done you know i mean all the other books that i've read with him and i mean it's it's wild the amount of detail this guy could put into a comic and he like you were saying before paul he was turning mm-hmm. out potentially 15 pages a week depending on yeah. when in the you know in the time span he was working and mm-hmm. how many books he was on yeah i mean it's it, his output is is incredible which is kind of nice because you can always find new kirby to read you think you've got it all covered and sure enough there's something else he did that you haven't read before but yeah i love the kirby tech you know in those old issues where the machines just have so many weird little gears and parts that seem to serve no purpose or like you know just these things that mr fantastic would be building in the baxter building they're like three stories tall this enormous machine and it's like oh yeah that's just my coffee maker you know but it's (laughs) drawn with such amazing detail i i I live for that stuff i really enjoy that stuff so it's cool to hear you guys sort of reading more kirby and kind of digging at that I would recommend, if you haven't, it's well worth reading his New Gods, the fourth world stuff he did for DC. It's, yeah. it's a lot of stuff, and it doesn't always work, but I feel like that's kind of his definitive work in a way. Because it really, if you read that, that's with Darkseid and Orion and you know the Planet Apocalypse and the New Gods, Mr. Miracle. That's Jack Kirby trying to create a modern mythology. You know, he's like, we have the Greek myths, we have the Roman myths, we have these uh, Norse myths with Thor and all that. What are our myths that we could tell right now for our society? And that's what the new gods are. And it's fantastic stuff. It's just so over the top. Plus, 
you get Jimmy Olsen, Superman's pal, through most of it. So it's it's a lot of fun <laughs> at the same time. So wait, wait, what? Within the same book? Okay, so yeah, this is something I want to make sure I pointed out too. It's not just Kirby's art, like I've been saying. It's his his approach to comics in general. The Fourth World was were four titles. You had New Gods, The Forever People. Mr. And, and Mr. Miracle. And when Jack Kirby got signed to DC, they said, you have to take over one already existing title. You can have your yeah, new books. I read to, an interview. They, yeah. they wanted him to take Superman, I guess, apparently. Yeah. That's what his wife said. Mm-hmm. But he, he ends up, he's like, well, give me a book that no one's working. He didn't want to take anybody's job. So give me a book that doesn't have a, a permanent <laughs> writer on it, you know? <laughs> Give so me, they give me a stinker, basically. Yeah, yeah. It, this the story is that he's like, give me your worst selling book, and I'll make it your best selling book. I don't know if that's really what he said, but they give him uh, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen is the fourth book. <laughs> what? So th- the first appearance Rope of this into these other books of yours. And the, yeah, and the first issue, first appearance of Darkseid is in Jimmy Olsen Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen number you know one eighty five or whatever. What? Yeah, <laughs> yep. So, oh I mean, man, I did not but, know that. So what's great, though, is, I mean, this idea that we're kind of familiar with now, we were just talking about the Batman crossover going on now, but the idea that you could take one story and stretch it off across four different comic books, Kirby kind of invented that. You had the shared universe in Marvel, but the Fantastic Four stories took place in Fantastic Four, and maybe Daredevil would show up because they all live in New York. Right. This was really telling one big story in four different comic book series, which is something that oh, never man. been done before and something that people do all the time now. Like, that was a brand new idea at the time. That's wild. <laughs> You know, so I, that's what I really want to kind of stress here for this conversation. Obviously, there's plenty to talk about and pick out with Kirby's, Kirby's work, but like that relentless imagination for not just what you could do in comics, but what comics could be. You know, there's stories about him telling people in the late 60s, like, look, there's going to be a day when people just go to a specific store that just sells comics, or there'll be comic books in libraries, or people will publish novel length comics like hardcover comics that people like be reading and in the 60s and 70s people just laughed at him like no this is just disposable culture you know but kirby saw a bigger role and importance of the art form yeah there's a there's another interview that i saw that nick happened to find and he sent it over my way as well where it's about five minutes long where it's just a straight one-on-one with jack kirby and i don't know who Mm -hmm. was doing the interviewing but oh paul sent that to me actually yeah okay so paul sent it to you you sent it to me okay (laughs) yeah Yeah, and i what i really loved about that is in the interview he talks about that how in the 60s and 70s he was making predictions about comics and saying that he was trying to do new stuff because he mm-hmm. wanted to essentially pave the way for people in the future, you know, as the next generation of comic people to, to push the medium even further. And yeah. th- one of the best moments in that interview was he talks about how, you know, we used to draw pictures and then we drew pictures next to pictures and we called that a strip. <laughs> and then we put a bunch of strips on one page, we called that a page, you know, and then we put a bunch of pages <laughs> together and we called that a comic book. Like that just, like the way he describes it, I'm not doing it any justice. So I'll insert the <laughs> audio bit just to fix, yeah. you know, fix that. The comic book medium itself is special. It's something that was, uh, that's a result of uh, evolvement. I, from what I understand, the editorial comic was first. And then they added a few panels to that and you had a comic strip. And they added a few pages to that and you had a comic book. And what we can add to the comic book? Uh, we may have to think about that. So I believe that's the interesting part of the entire field is to say, what is it? Where is it going? How it will evolve? 
and we experiment with that every day. But the way the way he goes about that, like just the wonder in his eyes, is so fantastic. Like I don't mm-hmm. I don't know when exactly that interview was done, but more it was it just like struck me in that that moment. That whole interview is just gold. So yeah. I'll I'll put a link to that in the show notes. But man, like the guy saw a future in comics far beyond what anyone could have imagined, and I think even more so now. You know, we think mm-hmm. comic books are big and great now, but there are, is still room to grow. And like Jack Kirby is proof that. It just takes like one person to push the bounds to, to mm-hmm. actually show that this medium can do a lot more. It's wonderful. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think, you know, as, as we've mentioned in several episodes of this podcast, I think we're all in agreement. We're kind of resistant to, the, resistant to the idea of there being a specific codified comic book canon. Like these are the important creators and these are the important books. That said, you don't have comic books the way we understand them today without Jack Kirby. He's that important. I think we can't overstate his importance, you know. Absolutely. And, it's, I think it's important to have these conversations and go back and read this stuff and find these old interviews and find these kernels of knowledge that Kirby passed along because he wasn't recognized at the time. You know, there's the famous story that he was at a comic book convention and a young creator, of course, I'm blanking on who it was. It is someone that went on to, you know, work in the comics. And he went up to, Jack Kirby was just sitting by himself. This is probably the early 80s. He wasn't working for one of the big two at the time. No one was really talking to him. He was just sitting at a convention by himself. The guy comes over and talks to him. He's like, hey, Jack, I want to get into comics. Do you have any advice? And Jack Kirby just looks at the kid and says, don't do it, kid. Comics will just break your heart. Because his entire career would just, so, <laughs> you know, and it's, he, there's these stories about him going to, he couldn't go to a toy store because if he went into a toy store, he would see a Captain America action figure. He's like, yeah, I created that and I got no money from it. Right. You know? So it, it's heartbreaking. And there's this underdog quality to Kirby. I think it's that I, I find sort of hopeful in a way. It's like we've come so far as comic book fans and as an industry to kind of like correct these problems. In a way, he's almost like a lot of those, you know, painters from past centuries where the joke was that you only you only get appreciated once you're dead. Yeah. And we don't think <laughs> of that as like a modern phenomenon, like with mm-hmm. modern pop culture and with modern art. You know, I think we don't think about it, but there's this idea that like people will see what you're doing and appreciate it and you'll you know have fame within your time and this idea Mm -hmm. that people won't you know discover you for 300 years and then be like wow what a genius Mm -hmm. the idea that you know we're we're cultured and enlightened to a point where we can you know notice these changes in 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 culture when they happen and yet i think with kirby you, you do have another one of these situations where he wasn't appreciated and and or maybe to some extent he was appreciated but he just Mm -hmm. got so utterly screwed over mm-hmm. and and you know not unlike the whole bill finger what's his name situation right. over at bob bill finger yeah. bob kane scenario mm-hmm. over at over at uh, dc comics mm-hmm. so but that's you know that's really what it means to sort of delve into literary canon or or literary critical theory and and mm-hmm. ask you know who are who are the silent voices who are the people that were there but we just you know they're not the ones that we remember mm-hmm. yeah and it's yeah. It, the biggest unfortunate part about that is it's not that we're recognizing him after his death because i don't think that's necessarily what it was but no, i think that no. people started to rec- only really recognize him you know after he i don't want to say peaked but after he was in his yeah. most prolific fertile you know, time period where in the 60s and 70s where he was just churning out comic books left and right and trying to break the yeah. mold of comics, as we've said. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's unfortunate that it wasn't until probably the 80s or maybe the 90s that people really started to look back and go, oh, you can notice a trend 
when this book started to come out, we saw a great change in comics, and it looks yeah. like it might feel it might come back to this one or maybe these one or th- two or three people. That's the wild yeah. part to me. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's sad to look at how like a lot of the creators were saying. You know, it's not to say that Jack didn't like going to conventions, that he didn't like interacting with fans. Tons mm-hmm. of the creators talk about how generous Jack was with his time when these creators would just, and this is crazy in this modern day and age, these people would just show up at his house. They found mm-hmm. his his address in the phone book and his wife would literally invite these people in and <laughs> and he would they would just go down into the basement, which he called the dungeon, and he would just be drawing, drawing and drawing. And it didn't matter if he had the radio on or if he was talking to you or whatever. He would just be nonstop drawing, nonstop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And... And that's just, I don't know, that's that's interesting. But a lot of these creators have said, despite that, like, there was no reason that Jack should have been forced to, you know, in his older years, mm-hmm. have to run the convention circuit. Like, I know right. a couple of them genuinely felt bad. They're like, if Jack wanted to do that, great. But he should have not been in a position where he felt he had to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, right. But right. but he did. Yeah, you know, and, and the point, I guess, uh, kind of a, a summer summarization point, I guess, at this point, to just say that there there is so much Jack Kirby material out there that I I might be hesitant to recommend OMAC, but there's going to be something that sticks with you if, if you're new to Jack Kirby or if you're well versed. There's always going to be something new for you to discover. So I mean, should we recommend some Kirby comics to people that might want to you know check this stuff out that may be new to it? Hey, I mean. Sure. I, I think yeah. <laughs> for me, it's, it's you know, I'm going to fall back on my, you yeah. know, in my safe zone. And I'm going to recommend that original X-Men story. Like mm-hmm. that, just that those first oh, couple yeah. of issues are just, mm-hmm. just wild and fantastic. I mean, it's very 60s. It's very, you know, cap- caption heavy. But at the yeah. same time, like you get, you get the, like the wholehearted origin of these weirdo characters that have these powers it's it's mind-boggling to think that the comics that were coming out at the same time were just like horror comics or they were detective (laughs) stories or you know just about playing everyday people and then you've got the x-men that show up on the stands and that's that's going to be wild like i i I feel like the number of that of issues that were sold for that number one were were almost like a million or something like that. It's it's an outrageous <laughs> number of of comics that were sold just for that first issue of X Men. The X Men, especially that original incarnation, are so weird. I mean, it, yeah, like you said, I, they I don't think they were that popular until the seventies and eighties. I think the X Men kind of like floundered for a long time because people weren't ready for that type of stuff. You know? Yeah, I could be misremembering. I, I, in my heart, I still place those early stories in a great place. So, um, you know, <laughs> yeah. leave me alone, Paul. <laughs> no, 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 no. no I'm, I, kidding, I, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I think they, they, they stand out now because you go back like, wow, the X-Men, the fact that X-Men survived out of the 60s is pretty a testament to how strong the characters are because, yeah, that's those are strange comics for the time. So Totally. I mean, I think... I would recommend OMAC, obviously, but, you know, with the caveat, it is pretty weird. I think if you want to get into 70s uh, DC Kirby and you're brand new to his work, you might want to check out The Demon, which was a series that he did. I think it ran about uh, maybe 10, 9 or 10 issues, and it's a Jack Kirby attempt to do a horror comic, and he invents the character Etrigan the Demon, and... Oh, no way, really? That was him? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, he invented everything, Nick. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't I, know he was Etrigan, but that makes yeah. God. When you think about Etrigan and you mm-hmm. know he's this demon, but he's not really evil, and he loves rhyming. Yeah, that yeah. does sound weird enough to be like a Kirby 
that that adds up completely. <laughs> yeah. I would re- I would recommend that stuff because it's not heavily there's it, there's not a ton of canon along with it. I mean, the New Gods I think is is a, a book that's worth your time to dig into all of this New God stuff, but it is a time commitment. I think the Demon are just really fun sort of standalone stories that kind of show Jack's playful side and just the the artwork, of course. I mean, that to me is his peak. That early seventies, he's just doing this sort of primitivism with his artwork where everything's just so abstracted, but it has such energy yeah. because of that. So that might be my, uh, if you're brand new to Kirby, maybe check out the demon first. Yeah. I, I would still definitely say that. I think I would recommend OMAC. It's, it's standalone in a way, which I think helps. I think that's definitely mm-hmm. a benefit. Um, it doesn't have sort of that tie in like new gods does. Um, but yeah, it, it's totally weird and it's definitely bizarre in a lot of, inexplicable ways but I think what I really like about it is that when you read that it's like 100% Kirby and that's not to say anything against his inker or his letterer Mm -hmm. but really the ideas the writing the dialogue the the layouts the pencils Mm -hmm. um, you know it's all unadulterated Kirby you know with no contributions from anyone else and so it's just it's just a, a glimpse of his, you know, vision in, mm-hmm. in its totality. And I think that there's something there's something valuable in that. I mean, there's there's a lot of other Kirby work where he's written stories that other people have drawn or he's drawn stories that other people have written. Mm-hmm. Even though I think if you even if you look at a lot of the stories he was writing for Marvel, even if he wasn't doing the pencils, he was still in, technically in charge of the layouts on a bunch right. of those things. Because mm-hmm. he was actually the in-house artist for marvel and i mean you know this paul but like all of the other artists were being instructed to draw the characters based on his designs Mm -hmm. for i think like 10 years they said he was like the the art director and so he was always the one that they turned to you know how 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 does everyone need to draw this character how does everyone need to draw that character Mm -hmm. and so it's it's interesting to see kirby in 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 roles where he was contributing or collaborating but especially in lieu of the stuff with Stan Lee, where it's like, well, who is doing what really? And it's like, who's, you know, your word against his, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. It's just nice to look at stuff that we can say, like, this was 100% Kirby. And right. I know that. And it's and it's interesting to, to look at that stuff with that perspective in mind. Yeah. I mean, other than that, I would encourage people, like, if, if you like one Marvel character or another, just go dig up the original Kirby stuff. I think you'll be fascinated. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. you know, Devil Dinosaur was his. Mm-hmm. And I read mm-hmm. somewhere, I don't know if you can confirm this, Paul, but he originally created that character because he thought it was going to be, or there was talk that it was going to be turned into a children's cartoon. Have you yeah. heard this before? Yeah. So as far as I understand, because his contracts with both DC and Marvel were so limiting, he wasn't getting paid that much for his contributions. He took a lot of, he did a lot of pitches to animation studios. And actually in the 80s and uh, late 80s, and I think even in, well, maybe not into the 90s, but in the 80s when he wasn't really working in comics that much, he was constantly pitching cartoon ideas. Like, uh, and huh. not many of them got made, but I think Devil Dinosaur was one who's like, okay, this is a concept I could pitch as a cartoon, uh, didn't get picked up, now it's a comic book. You know, that kind it of It shouldn't thing. go unmentioned as well that any of you who have seen the movie Argo, Ben Affleck's movie, right. where they get these people out of, I believe it's Iran, mm-hmm. with the idea that they're technically making a movie, a science fiction movie, and the they use concept art from a film mm-hmm. to you know aid them in this um, illusion obviously argo is based on real events and the artist who was drawing that concept art 
was Jack Kirby. I think the movie was called Lord of Light, I believe. Yeah, yeah. And you can find it. We could maybe get a link so people can see the actual artwork that he do. He drew. He didn't half-ass it. He drew some amazing artwork to trick these people into thinking they were making a movie. It's no stunning. Way. And the fact that he had time to do it in, in, <laughs> right. in the middle of all this <laughs> other comics. So, I mean, again, that's just a testament to his unbridled imagination and creativity. So, Was it specifically done for that? Not to split hairs, but I thought I read that it was actually a movie project that went under, but the art was already done. Yeah, they. I think the the movie was in a state of pre production, and sure. then then it didn't get made, and then they basically piggybacked off that for the the rescue attempt to rescue the hostages. They had to use yeah. a movie that was already in development to gotcha. make it seem worth, worthwhile. So, do we have a uh, some final thoughts to wrap up on? Do we just want to say uh, thank you, Jack? I guess that's what I would say. Thanks, Jack, for for uh, literally inventing comics. So. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, inventing the modern day comic. You know, when yeah. when Paul was in New York, I think I've told this story on the show before. But when Paul was in New York, we were walking around Lower Manhattan, and we found the we had the address for Jack Kirby's old apartment where he lived when he was living in Manhattan, and we walked down when he, there. Where and he was took, born? Yeah, where he was there, born. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he lived there for a long while, didn't he? Yeah, I think he grew up. Up there and then he he did a lot of stories i think later on and some artwork about depicting what it was like to live in manhattan the lower east side the fact that he did a lot of stories about gangsters that he saw gangsterism up front in a, in the 20s and 30s in new york so yeah i mean that was a pretty important place for him to grow up there and we went there we stood in front of the yeah. door mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it was awesome yeah that was, was like going fantastic. to mecca yeah yeah <laughs> my my final thoughts i mean for for jack kirby is just Take a look around you and when you're looking at comic books and just just recognize like how much influence he's had and how iconic and like recognizable those characters are from his original takes on the characters. I mean his covers, his just mm-hmm. his the way that he drew characters in general in action. Like it's it's unbelievable how influential one man's art could be on an entire medium. That's mm-hmm. that's the thing mm-hmm. that I I always take away totally. from thinking about this guy. Yeah. Yeah, for me, it's it's really the idea that he was always asking why why should comic books have any sort of limits? You know, if you compare mm-hmm. comic books to music, if you compare comic books to novels, you know, you don't have people saying this is how you have to structure a novel or this is how you have to make a recording. You know, and he always said why why should comic books stop evolving? Why should this medium you know dictate how things are drawn? or how panels should work, or how a a story should be structured. And when everyone was, like I said, trying to make comic books quote-unquote more respectable by studying how muscles work and how how that sort of thing could be realistically depicted on the page, Kirby was going and and, and abstracting it. And Mm -hmm. a lot of the people in that documentary were saying, Kirby is like Picasso, Kirby is like, you know, Goya. Mm-hmm. And he's he he knows as I think Neil Adams said a lot of people thought that because Kirby was self-taught he didn't understand how muscles worked or he didn't bother to spend the time and as Adams said like those guys were idiots Kirby perfectly understood how that worked but he just wanted to abstract it because why are there limits why should there be why can't you draw things the way you want or write things the way you want and that this medium is no different than any other pop culture medium out there there shouldn't be any limits. Thanks for listening to the I Read Comic Books podcast. Our host, producer, and editor this week is Mike Rappin. 
Special thanks this week to Paul Jaisley and Nick White. The music in this episode is brought to you by Fantagram and Infinity Shred. You can find more Fantagram at their website at fantagram.com. As always, Infinity Shred can be found at infinityshred.com, as well as on Bandcamp at infinityshred.bandcamp.com, where their first track of their upcoming album, Long Distance, is available for listening. If you enjoy this show, tell someone about it. Rate us online. Write to us. You can reach us by email at ircb at destroythesibe.org. I know it's a weird email, but it's the one that we've got. You can ask us questions and comment on each episode in our subreddit at ireadcomicbooks.reddit.com. The entire podcast team is on Twitter, and you can follow the show at IRCB Podcast. But a great way to experience the podcast and listen to our back-issue bin of episodes is to visit our website at ircb.us. If you have a moment, please take a second and fill out our user survey at ircb.us slash survey. We'd really love to get feedback from everyone who listens to our show, so please take a moment and fill it out. Until next time, from all of us here at the podcast, thank you for listening.